Last week was such an encouraging message for me, but there were a couple of places at the end of last week's message that we needed to clear up. Well, some with some terminology, and, and then another piece that we had talked about from Daniel 9. So I, I need to make a couple of uh, clear-ups. But one of the, the first pieces is, I used a, a, the word canon, and it was brought to my attention that the word canon may not be a real common term for us. And what I said was that the Old Testament canon, or the Old Testament was canonized before Jesus was here. And what I mean by that, the word canon simply means a collection, right? a collection of books. And, and if we look at our Bible, though we think this is a book, it's really a collection of 66 books. Right? And the first, the first section is the Old Testament. And those books were canonized, meaning they were set in stone before Jesus was here. In fact, they were set in stone about the 4th century B.C., it was closed. It was done. So everything that we have here in the Old Testament was written 400 years before Christ. And for those of you who weren't here last week, the reason that was important is we were talking about certain prophecies. The prophecies stated so clearly and calculated so perfectly, but they happened 400 years before Jesus even got here. And we just see these unfolding and there's some popular thought today with the, some of these uh, movies about the Gnostic Gospels and such that go along and, and try to tell you that a couple of guys sat down in a room somewhere around 200 or 400 A.D. and wrote this whole thing to attempt to control nations. Well, they didn't do their homework. And so just wanted to clear that up that these things that we were talking about last week. They were prophesied way back before they actually occurred. And it's important to have that knowledge. All right, that's one. So when I say that the scripture was canonized before Christ was here, I just meant it was set in stone. All the books of the Old Testament were already in place before Jesus started quoting them, before Jesus was here. Okay? That's the word canon. Secondly, I got all excited about Daniel chapter 9 last week. And then a couple people said, oh, I think you missed your dates. And so on the back of the outline... Some of you engineers and accountants are already looking for math errors in it. So what I did there, last week I said that, that the Daniel 9 prophecy ends up perfectly on the Passover. Somebody said, you know, I've heard some teaching on that, and, and I, I think it wasn't Passover. I think it was triumphal entry, because in Zechariah 9, it talks about another prophecy about where he's coming into Jerusalem as the king, and those two prophecies line up. So I thought, well, okay, maybe I should do a little more homework. So I went and looked through about two dozen sources and, and then sat down and did the math myself, which is really kind of fun because really it's just adding and subtracting a bunch of numbers. But it actually turns out to be Passover. And you'll see it there. And not only is the math there, but it's just explanations from the different prophecies and how the prophecies actually interact to take a prophecy that was written uh, 500 years before Christ that, you know, they should have just known. They just should have known. Now, I wouldn't have known either. But you, you just look at that and it's mind-boggling. And last week we looked at that and said, you know, this is how meticulous God is about redeeming us. And so all that explanation is on that back page, which should clear up what I said last week. A piece of that caused me a problem. So at the same time, I'm getting all excited about these numbers. And I'm a mathematician by trade. And so... 
you know, even though adding and subtracting isn't really math, I, I, get all, I get all excited about trying to work out the numbers and see how the solar calendar and the, and the lunar calendar work together and how you have to... It just gets me all excited inside. But while I was working through that, I'm also studying for this week's passage. And this week's passage is really talking about rightly judging ourselves or, or looking at ourselves for where God is moving and, and what God's doing in our life. And, and it just dawned on me, I really get excited about the wrong things so often. I wrote this in the note, if you got the e-news, that so often I get so excited about seeing the orchestration. Seeing what God's doing and how he's laying things out. And that's the part to me that just, it, it builds this foundation for my faith is actually seeing what God's doing. And so often I forget about the whole God who did it. I get all excited about the orchestration and forget about the conductor. And this just might be part of how I'm wired. But I pray that God will switch those for me one day. That I can glory in the things that he's done because who he is. Not that I can glory in who he is because of what he's done. I'd like to see those switched in my life. As I was preparing for this message, that is the one thing that I noted that, you know, this is a change that that I'm expecting God to make. So let's pray and move into this week's passage. God, everything we have here this morning is yours. God, we bring our weeks, we bring our hindrances, we bring our thoughts, our struggles, our fears our excitements, our visions, dreams, God, all of it, everything we bring here today is yours, God. And I would just pray that you would find a way to sew all those things together in such a way that when we leave here today, we've interacted with you and that we're longing to be closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start this morning reading the verses of the passage. We are in 1 Corinthians. We're going to finish off chapter 11 today. We're going to start in verse 27 and go to the end. Verse 27. Therefore, you already know how we're going to start this message, don't you? Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Verse 33. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters... I will arrange when I come. All right. Verse 27. There's a therefore, so we got to go back and do our therefore business. It's just the way you do it. Why is it there? So we have to look back at the passages that we dealt with last week. Okay, and there's two places that we could attach the therefore. 
We can attach it to verse 23 when he says, this instruction that I give you, I have from the Lord. He states it specifically because he wants to be emphatic about this information I'm about to give you. I receive this directly from the Lord. And so we attach it to 23. Because this is from the Lord, it's one. Also, verse 26. Now, we didn't cover verse 26 last week. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of integrate that into our message this morning. But verse 26, the therefore is also because he's saying you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, it's important. Therefore, what this actual sacrament is doing needs to be held in in very tight control, meaning you need to do it exactly the way I tell you, because what you're doing is you're proclaiming something again that's going to be fulfilled in the future. And we talked about that last week when we talked about all the sacrifices and all the offerings. They were to be done meticulously, exactly, because their representation was something that was going to be fulfilled later. And if you did it wrong here, you would miss the fulfillment. And so what Paul is telling them is, this is also something that's going to be fulfilled later, and so it needs to be exacting. Therefore, if you do it wrong, verse 27... Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Because it has a significant purpose. The word we have to key in on there is unworthy. In an unworthy manner. But before we do that, there's one piece there that we just have to make sure that we have an understanding of it says if you do this in an unworthy manner you're going to be guilty of the body and the blood of the lord and that is a thick statement if you were just to sit down and you know try and come up with what's paul getting at here it sounds so i don't even have a word for that it's it's just it just sounds thick you could liken this to flag burners The reason somebody gets a flag and burns it isn't because the flag has fleas, right? It's not because we don't have anything to get our fire going and so they grab a flag and they burn it up. There's a purpose in burning a flag. You're making a statement against the country that you're burning the flag on, right? And so you see this on the news all the time. Somebody just hates some other country so they grab a flag and they torch it up and they catch it on video and it's a great big deal. Why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because burning the flag represents some real spiteful feelings toward the country. And so one represents the other. One action is meant to represent the other. And what Paul is saying here is, if you eat in an unworthy manner, it isn't just the bread, it isn't just the ceremony that you're defiling. It isn't just... Yeah, so I go back to my seat, I eat, I drink, I'm happy, everything's fine. And I don't care about that moment. That's not it. It says if you do this in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of the very blood and body of Christ. You're defiling the entire sacrament. You're defiling Christ. Because again, we go back to the verse before that says what you're doing is you're proclaiming the death of Christ until he returns. And when you do it in an unworthy manner, you're saying whatever Whatever. I don't believe it anyway. I go, I get my stuff. Everybody else is in the line getting it. I'm going to get mine. And go back and 
For me, it's all hocus pocus anyway. And by saying that, you're defiling the very death of Christ and what, it was, what he did for us. So he's saying you're guilty of that. That is a rich statement. Unworthy manner. What does that look like? So this, this really is the linchpin in this message. It even it connects all the way back from last week and it's going to finish up this week. What's happening here with the Corinthians? What is he speaking to? He's saying when they come, there's this, there's this thing they're doing and they're partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Stop that. That's what the context of the entire verse is. So the obvious context of this unworthy manner is what's going on in the Corinthian church. And so we've got to get an idea what this is. They have this thing called a love feast. Now, when we do communion, oftentimes we do it on Sunday morning. We come here, and the, the elements are on the table, and, and we, we file through in a very orderly manner. We go back to our seats. We wait. Everybody partakes of it together. It's very orderly. Now, in the Corinthian church, what they did is they added the Lord's Supper to potluck. Right? That's the way it was designed. So, everybody brings some food. And really, it turns out to be kind of like a super flock. Like, all the community groups come, and they, they organize how they're going to feed each other. And so, you know, the people in the community groups call each other and say, all right, you bring some turkey. We'll show them one. We'll show them which one's going to cook better. Bring an apple pie. And, and so certain community groups have this feast on the table. They got lamb chops and, you know, whatever. But it's a feast. And then you look over there and there's a community group that got real busy that week and, and just couldn't bring anything. Or, or maybe they were poor and they, they couldn't afford lamb chops. And so they had a chicken or something. And. And instead of actually putting all that together in a, a potluck, they just kind of keep it in their groups there. So they have their own tables to sit at and they look over. <laughs> Bet you wish you were at this table. Huh? And they eat and they get drunk and they just enjoy themselves. And, it's a, and, and Paul says, you know, some of you are gluttoning yourself. You come to this love feast is what they called it. And you just come and you just fill yourself. You fill your belly and you're not here to get spiritually fed. You're just... You're here for potluck. And then at the end, they do this Lord's Supper thing. But, you know, we've already eaten. And, and we did it over here. We, we don't mix it up at all. And so that's the context directly from Corinthians of what was going on in this church. That when they were coming together, he says, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. What you're doing is, is something totally different. Now, you can say you're gathering and you can put it on your... your uh, your announcements for the newspaper that say we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper on Wednesday night. You can put it in there, but that ain't what you're doing. You're coming here and you're you're just eating judgment on yourself, thinking you're doing something good. That's the context. Now, we don't do that. For us, we're going to have to make an adjustment as to what does it mean then for unworthy manner? Because he doesn't just say he doesn't specifically point out you eating this way he says in an unworthy manner and there are all kinds of other things communion is one of those elements in the christian faith that it's so divisive <laughs> how it's done where it's done when it's done because it's important and it is important but what does it mean for us to be in an unworthy manner we don't have these these knock down drag out potlucks before we do communion we do it very orderly but there are other ways. And I have some of them listed there. How about observing the Lord's Supper ritualistically? Surely not. Is this even possible? You come in on Sunday morning. You just forgot we're doing the Lord's Supper. 
altogether. And, and you came in and, okay, so you had a little fight with your spouse on the way in. And your kids weren't really behaving when they got in the car. And so you got here and you're just full. Your week was full or something. Oh, we're going to do this, the Lord's Supper. But it's okay because we do it every month. And I don't even really have to give it a second thought. Because this is just what we do. And we take a few moments before the Lord's Supper to prepare ourselves. But as you're preparing yourself, what you're, you're just kind of sitting there blank. It's already been too much morning. But I'm going to get up and I'm going to just do it because that's what I do. I, I do communion on the third Sunday. We see this happening all the way through Scripture. We see people bringing sacrifices to God over and over and over. And God saying, why are you doing that? Why do you bring me a lamb that's messed up? Why are you bringing me this when your heart really isn't with me? You're just going through the motion. I don't want it. Do you think I need more lambs? Do you think I need more sheep? Do you think I need that? Do you think I need your gold? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I don't need these things. I want your heart. And we see, and there's some verses there. Hosea 8, uh, Matthew 23, where he goes off and he talks, and this is maybe closer to, closer to home for us. Woe to the Pharisees, where he's saying, you know what, you're like whitewashed tombs. You come to church with your suit and your tie, and, and everything looks real good on the inside, but you don't care. You just come because it's what you do socially. And you're not really observing my Lord's Supper. You're doing it in an unworthy manner. Because your heart's not really given to me. Woe to you, he says. No players here. We don't want players. Now, I'm, I'm already starting to feel like I'm, I'm going off onto the end. And I don't want to do that. This is meant, in the end, to encourage us. He is speaking directly to a problem. An unworthy manner is speaking to a problem. Something is happening that's breaking down the connection between the people and God. But the encouragement is, stop that so that we can enjoy the fullness of God in this time and when we come together. So, as I speak through these unworthy manners, I'm I'm pointing out the things that could be going wrong. And the point is to pull away from those things. And pull back to God. Unworthy man of the next one. And this one's just one that we need to talk about. That you trust in the Lord's Supper for salvation. We talked about some of the things last week. Those big words of transubstantiation and consubstantiation. Where, where we actually believe that taking the bread saves you. The Bible clearly says you are saved by grace through faith. That it is nothing that you do. It's a gift from God. When we observe the Lord's Supper, he says clearly, do this in remembrance of me and you're going to proclaim my death until I come back. That's what it is. It's not you getting saved when you come up here and take the elements. And so when we see it, and we talked about some of the things last week about how how those verses kind of collide together to come up with this idea that you get saved by taking the elements and how grace is dispensed there. That's not it. That would be an unworthy manner. And the last one there is, is coming to the Lord's Supper with bitterness in your heart. We, we see the passage that says, you know, if you come, you're going to bring an offering. And you know that a brother has something against you. Just leave it there. 
and go work that out and come back. And I heard a story from somebody here that we were doing communion and they had had a battle with their spouse that morning. And the spouse wasn't here. And, and before they came up and took communion, they left, went and made a phone call, committed to making it right, and then came in and take the elements. When we get to the next sections where we talk about judging yourself rightly or, or examining yourself, that's exactly what he's talking about. If you find in your heart that there's some kind of bitterness... The word says you can't love God and hate your neighbor. You just can't do it. You're a liar. If you think you can do that, you, you, you just can't. So if you're sitting here and you're like, oh, I get to go take communion. And, and all week you've just been all bitter towards people. That would be taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so is the answer to not do it? You're sitting here and you know... I just want to rip one of their legs off. Can I say that in church? I, you just... Yeah, aren't you glad you're not at my house all week? So, you have these frustrations and, and, you're, and you're just here. And so you're... Well, I know the Bible says that if, if I do this and in verse 30, it's going to tell me that I'm weak and sick and, and could die from this. So, I better not take it. You missed it. Let's move on. What's the solution? The solution to the unworthy manner is examine. You're examining yourself. Now, there's two things. There's a number of reasons we do communion on the exact same day of the week. And maybe I'm making one of them up, but I'm going to make it up anyway. One is it's, a, it's nice logistically. Everybody knows when things have to happen. But beyond logistically, we all know when it's going to happen. You can put on your calendars, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper on this day. And you can already be examining yourself. Now, as a believer, examining yourself is something we're told to do all the time. But I'm not a Pollyanna. I I understand what life does to us and how we get into the the mouse wheel or whatever you call that. and, and, And things just start to happen. And there's days... You, you go to bed going, man, I didn't give God a minute today. And I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to do that. And then you wake up and you have a sick kid first thing in the morning and boom, you're off and going again. We live in a fallen world. But you know, there are times that we set aside like Sunday morning where you just say, you know what, the whole world can melt down for all I care. I'm going to go and see my God. And it gives us that time to reflect and that time to to manage and examine ourselves. But you're sitting here and you're examining yourself and you come up with, yep, got some bitterness. Ain't no question about that. Yep. Uh, in the end, I do probably do this kind of ritualistically and, and don't fully understand why it is I'm doing it. And, and you go through this whole list and, and so then you sit in your chair and say, okay, well, I know I'm not supposed to do the bread and the cup then. I'm just supposed to sit here. And that verse... It's so beautiful. It it reads like this. Verse 28. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. So yes, you came up with, you know, I have these issues. That doesn't mean sit in the chair and not come forward. It means you've examined yourself and you've exposed, you've said, God, expose these things to me. God is going to sanctify us. But once you've examined yourself and you're true to what you actually are, who you actually are, 
come. You've done the examining, and yes, you found yourself wanting. Maybe there are a few of us that can sit there, and, and after we're done examining, we go, Oh, yeah, God loves me. I'm just as shiny as I can be on Sunday morning, and, and come down with nothing that you have found in your soul that says, God, please help me. There may be a few people like that, but most of us are going to examine ourselves and find ourselves wanting. But that doesn't mean don't come. It means commit to God. Give that to God and say, okay, expose these things, these wicked things in my heart, God, and let's work through them. Sanctify me. That's true examining. In Acts 2.42, we see that every time these people got together, they committed themselves to apostles' teaching. And one of the things they committed to was breaking bread, having the Lord's Supper. If you would consider that every time we came together, everybody in your body was in tune to examining themselves, judging themselves rightly before they took the cup. Do you see that, what that would do to a church? That's the definition of church growth, right? You're working through these issues and you're being real with yourself and you're being real with each other. And you're saying, God, I am. I'm found wanting. Sanctify us. Sanctify all of us. And and they did this continuously. And it has this mechanism to keep the church pure, to purify it and, and remove sin because you're continually looking for those areas, those things that are keeping you from one another and keeping you from God. And not only when we get to the next slide, when we're talking about uh, judging yourself rightly, we're also saying, what ought we be? Not just what we are now, and yes, I found myself wanting, but who am I expected to be? And then asking God to help you get there. That's church growth. And if we're doing that continuously, that's going to purify us. One other piece here. I I used this word earlier, and I'm going to struggle articulating this. But if you've ever been in a situation where you're sitting at a table, and there's five or six people at the table... And they start talking about religion. And one of the people at the table starts talking about Christianity. Now, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this person does not know Christ. But yet, they know everything about Christianity, and they just start talking about it freely. But it doesn't mean anything to them. And so, they don't really care about being rejected, but they just continue talking. And yeah, they've they've even been to church a couple of times. They go on Easter and, and, and a couple other times. And you're looking across the table going, but you're so lost. And here's how this ties in. Part of examining ourselves is to guarantee that no one sitting, no one partaking this bread are players. That you're forced to actually be true and say, hmm, this does mean something to me. I do understand When I'm proclaiming the Lord's death, and that's what we're going to talk about here, what does that actually mean? And do I really buy it? Do I really buy all this, you know, Jesus, there's a curse and he's... Do I really buy all that? And so when you're actually coming into the body and you're you're doing the Lord's Supper, you're not playing. There's no religiosity is our big word. There's nobody here that's just kind of play in church. It eliminates that possibility. All right, it doesn't eliminate it. You can still go through those motions, but that's one of its purposes. 
that God says this is so important that you do this right and you examine yourself and you're true about it before you come here so that you don't get this body, this whole church culture that's all about just playing the game. And we come here socially and we do this. We can't have that. And so God gives us this remnant in remembrance of me to make sure that we remember why we're really here. And it's not a social gathering. All right. Judging rightly, verses 29 to 31. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Now we have the word body is going to sprinkle through here a couple of times. And so we need to know which body he's talking about and what judgment means. Now very, if you have a King James Bible, uh, King James did a, a great disservice on this verse. Because you'll actually, it, it says there, drinks damnation on himself. Paul is speaking to Christians here. There is no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ. There is no damnation for those of us that are in Christ. And so translating that word damnation there is incorrect. The word should be judgment. And it's actually used in chastisement, as we'll see in the next couple of verses. Right? You're, you're drinking judgment on yourself if you don't judge the body rightly. So what body is he speaking of? He's not talking about the church body. He's talking about the elements. If you don't discern the, the holiness of what's going on in this sacrament, you haven't judged the body correctly. Now, if that's the case, one of the things we need to know is, why do we do it? We know what we're remembering. But what does it mean when we say we're going to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns Do we all have a good grasp of what that actually means? And so we're going to go through a couple of scriptures this morning that pertain to this. And we're going to start in Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to read just a passage there. And then I'm going to bounce around a little bit. So we have a feeling when we come here and we proclaim the Lord's death, what is it you're proclaiming? Are you running around the street saying, Jesus died? Yep. It's such an odd statement. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Now, if you said this on the street with your Aunt Lucy and said, you know what? We're going to celebrate Aunt Lucy's death until she comes on Wednesday. Did you catch that? That's a rather strange statement. So it's more than just death that you're proclaiming here. You're proclaiming his death until this man who died comes back. Again, so there's a lot to that passage. All right, Romans chapter five, and I'm going to start reading in verse six. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, 
But we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Okay, some big words. What does that mean? That's the gospel. In the beginning, God created everything, and we were part of it. Man fell away from God. Man fell away from God, and God put a curse on it, and we now live in this cursed planet. You can say that's not fair. Well, God's design. He said, you stay holy, you can stay here. And it didn't happen that way. And man now is disjointed from God. But in every single one of us, there's this desire. I love, if you've ever seen the, the movie Kingdom of Heaven. Okay, it's violent and gory. But you know, it's a battle movie. So, and I have boys. <clears throat> that was my disclaimer. But this man in the beginning of the movie says, I will do anything to find forgiveness. And they put that line in that movie so well because in every single one of us, there is this desire to reach back and find our creator. Why are we here? What are we doing? This world is broke and I, we know that we're separated from our creator. Now it comes out in lots of different ways, but we know that there's this gap. And the death of Christ brought that gap. He took the curse away. He became the curse. Took it away and reconciled us back to himself, that says. So when we proclaim his death, what we're proclaiming is that we were away from God. We had damnation on us. No hope. And God brought us back together. In Christ, he, he closed that gap. He provided what we needed to be with God. So when we t- that's what we're proclaiming. When we take the elements, we're proclaiming that when Christ did this, he saved us. He took that curse away. And we're saying, it's like in Galatians 2, where it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I, and I have the bread, I have the cup, and we're proclaiming, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. This life I live in the body, I don't live, it, it's not me, I'm just living it through the Son of God. Who gave himself for me. That's what we're proclaiming. It's much more than just walking down the aisle and getting something and going back and going, oh yeah, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. It's so much more than that. There are a number of verses there that you can go through that tie these things together. Judge ourselves rightly. What is our true state? After we've examined ourselves, we judge the body rightly. We know what it means. We know what it is. We're celebrating. The next thing we're going to do is we're examining ourselves and actually judging right now. This is something that's got to be ongoing. This is something that we've got to be doing every day. And when we come to when we come to the table, it gives us this excuse to actually be true to ourselves. But this is something that just has to happen on and on and on all day long. When I I read David and he says, God, expose all these wickednesses in my heart that I don't even know about. Now, I'm not a visionary. By any means. But there's one thing that I know. And that is I live in a world that's broken and cursed. And so everything that I have could be better. And that includes. And I, this is my favorite example. My marriage. I have a wonderful wife. A wonderful life. But I know. That even my marriage could be better. 
If I knew those things that I was doing that was causing me to hurt my wife or hurt the marriage and what are, and, and I don't even know, I walk through life kind of staying busy and, and I don't often stop and, and note those things. But when I do, I go, oh, if I did that differently, it would make this area better. Well, I can't do it differently because I don't know how. And so I pray and say, God, all right, you've shown me what I can do better here. You've shown me how I can make that next step. But now I need you to help me move there. And that's what we call sanctification. But unless we actually judge rightly about not only who we are, but who we ought to be, you'll never make that step. You never say, yeah, there's that next step that I can go to. So my marriage is one place and my Christian life is another. And I gave that example a long time ago about all those bushes. And, and I've heard this example over and over and over and about you know, this naked guy running through the field, hiding behind bushes and asking God to burn them all up. Right? There are these bushes between me and God and it's sin. And I don't want anything that keeps me away from God. I don't want anything in this field that will allow me to hide from God. And there are lots of things. And when one gets burned up, I run behind the next one. And I see that I'm behind another bush. And I say, God, burn this one up too. And it can be all kinds of things. Everything from covetousness and, and wanting money and wanting, you know, all, just all kinds of things that get in the way between me and God. And I want them all to disappear. And again, I'm not a visionary. I just know I live in a fallen world. And I know that I have sin. And I know that things can be better. And until the day I actually see Jesus, I'm going to continue to ask him to burn these bushes up. But you have to judge rightly. We have to be honest. You can't come and say, you know what? I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Now, let's not let this be a downer, though. God has given us a we have wonderful lives and I'm a happy man. So I'm not saying you can't go and enjoy your Sunday afternoon. I'm saying that there is a next step for us. There's always a next step, and we have to be honest about that. We see in Revelation 3, when Christ is talking to Laodicea, and he says, You think you're all polished and all pretty. What you don't know is you're poor, naked, and wretched. I love that verse. Right? You're all feeling pretty good about yourself, but let me just tell you your real state. As we're honest of ourselves like that, it allows us to go to that next step. What's your commitment to Jesus? We're going to be true about that too. I love the story. Peter, after the resurrection, says, you know, I'm a little tired. I just, my whole life just got turned upside down. I'm going fishing. Anybody going with me? A couple guys jump in the boat. They head off. They do the man thing. They're out there going for some big bass. And, and they see this guy on the beach. And the guy on the beach says, have you caught any fish? Well, guess we ought to be honest. No, we didn't catch anything. And he said, well, throw your nets over the other side of the boat. And Peter's heard that before, hadn't he? And his mind just started going, you got to be kidding me. I thought the ladies were just messed up that morning when they said, no way. And he's just... He's filled with something that we just can't even explain, right? You can, you can feel it when you read that passage. You just feel what, what's going on in Peter's head. And he's just like, whatever. And he just dives in the water and starts swimming. All I want to do right now is be there with Jesus because all of these last couple of weeks have not been pleasant for me. 
And he gets on the shore and Jesus says, Peter, you snake. Can't believe you did not. He didn't say that, did he? He didn't say that. He said, hey, bring me some fish. Cooks them up. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter being Peter says, well, dude, of course, man. I'm, I'm like the one most committed to. He didn't say that this time. That's what he said in the first 20 something chapters. That was Peter's nature. But this time he said, you know that I like you. And at that moment, Jesus didn't say, well, then you're disqualified. I don't want you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Then he asked him again, make sure, do you love me? And Jesus is forcing Peter here to be honest with his commitment. Because if we think we're all that, we're as holy as they come, then you're not, you're not going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, help me grow. Help me be like you. Show me yourself. Because if you think you're all that already, you don't need him. Jesus came to save the sick, not the people who think they're well. And so when we get to that examining, that truthfulness about our commitment to Christ is imperative. And then last, our commitment to the body. This is something, the elements is something that you don't do in isolation. You don't go home and break the bread and drink the cup in your closet. This is meant to be done together. We proclaim this together. It is a community event. It purifies the church. What is our commitment to one another? Get in, get out. We come here to get our social needs met. We come here to bless and encourage one another. What is our commitment to the body? And again, judge rightly. So to conclude this, it says, when God does discipline us, when we come in an unworthy manner, or in life in general, God is going to discipline us. And nowhere in the Bible does God disciplining us mean a bad thing. God's wrath, not good. God's discipline means we're out of line and that God loves us and he's bringing us back into line. And there's the verses on your handouts there. There's a couple of them there and just go through your concordance and look up discipline. And when God disciplines us, it's one thing after another. God disciplines those he loves. Well, that makes sense. God promises to sanctify us and make us like his son. That's what we desire. The Christian's heart says, I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I hunger and thirst to be more closer to God. And to do that, you're becoming more Christ-like. And to do that, because of your natural body, that requires discipline. And if you've never been to the divine woodshed, either you're real quick to learn, or you're not in Christ. But anytime you have a stiff neck, And God wants you to move into this area of obedience. And you say, I'm not going. If you're God's, you're going. And you can expect discipline in your life, whether that's sickness, whether that's any kind of troubles. 
that draw you back, God is going to discipline you and bring you back to himself. Now, I can already hear the email I'm about to get when I said sickness there. We live in a fallen world and you can get sick for whatever reason. But God also has divine control to use whatever he wants to bring you in line with himself and to make you think. He disciplines those he loves. And we see there in verse 30 where he says, and some of you sleep. It doesn't mean they're sleeping through service. It means they've died. Now, here's a beautiful thing. God will take your life before he allows you to fall out of his hand. How is that for a promise? For those of us who are a little more obstinate than the rest, when we belong to Christ, it is our heart to become more Christ-like, but there's times we're just going to fight for this one thing that we... And it says, God will even take your life before he lets you fall from grace. That's a promise you can take to the bank. God disciplines those he loves. Well, this wraps up this way. The directives. In context, he says, listen, when you come to eat the Lord's table, wait for each other. It's really that simple, people. I want you to come. I want you to have your love feast. I want you to share. I want you to do these things. But I want you to wait. I don't want this to be some gluttony match where you just come and drink judgment on yourself. But that's an interesting way to end this because he says, so you don't just come together for sin. And I think about that in our body and wonder, as we come together, is there ever a time when our hearts are so not in tune to be where God's going to be that we actually gather to just have judgment on ourselves? And I pray that's never the case. Because when we come, and I heard it this morning, at 9.30 we get together and we pray for the service and for just for everything. And you just hear the prayers that say, God, we're... Everything that we brought that isn't ready to worship you and to get in the way of what you're going to do today, take it away. And you just hear it over and over and over. And so I pray that's something that's consistent in Windsor Community Church as long as we exist. That our hearts come here to truly worship. Now you saw a lot of pictures up there and you probably saw your faces and I'm sorry if any of them were pictures you didn't like. But this message about judging yourself rightly, and as I thought through that, I thought, what a perfect way to remember is you see yourself. You look in the mirror, and you don't go away like one that forgets totally who you are. But you look at yourself, and you judge rightly. And we're going to move into a time of communion. And let's just keep that in mind. Keep those questions in mind. Examine yourself. Judge rightly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you do that for us? God, right now, as as we are going to come and and remember you, God, I pray that you purify us. God, are there places we need to repent? Help us to repent. Are there places where we need to, to be encouraged and to encourage one another? Help us to be that encourager. But God, make us a body that's wholly sold out to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.